Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries. And today, Tom and I have the privilege of being able to have a conversation with Dr. Vodi Bakum regarding some new curriculum that is coming out based upon his book, Fault Lines. It's a wonderful conversation in which we're able to discuss not just that curriculum, uh, but also the ideas that come out of his book, Fault Lines, how they apply to the world that we're living in today as Christians. And then we also go on to talk about some important issues when it comes to public theology and political theology. Uh, but before we get started in the conversation, we want you to watch the this brief clip which describes the curriculum that is coming forth. I wrote Fault Lines because of my love for the church. Um, We're doing this project because of love for the church. I honestly believe that the critical social justice movement represents a threat, an existential threat. Not a threat to Christianity per se, because Christianity can't be threatened. God is on his throne, he will protect his bride. However, it represents a threat to unity within the body. We gotta act like that the disadvantages between us are cultural and are not systemic, then we can't be together. Critical race theorists want to deliver us from the basement low ambitions of a thin, emaciated view of equality. It represents a threat to the clarity of the message that we communicate. Whiteness becomes the standard by which all good theology is judged. Whiteness is rooted in plunder, in theft, in slavery, genocide of Native Americans, sitting on stolen land. So that if it's right theology, it's written by a white scholar who is contextualizing that theology for white audiences. Uh, The gospel will always be the gospel. However, We are not always faithful in the way that we communicate the gospel. Because silence is too high price to pay to be unified when our necks are under a police knee. The anti-racists fundamentally reject savior theology. That goes right in line with racist ideas and racist theology. And we're not always faithful in the way that we apply the gospel. When you sign up for this congregation, you're signing up to be part of racial justice. And if that's not for you, then this church is not for you. The solution is fundamentally, yes, the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, but also dethroning white supremacy in all of the forms in which it shows up in Christian spaces. So the goal here is to fight for faithfulness, to fight for the truth of that gospel to fight for the Bride of Christ, to fight for unity in the Bride of Christ. It's a breakthrough if you can get white people to acknowledge that our race privileges us in this society. That is like the second coming. Virtually no white man thinks they are guilty. You have to push and push and push to the point where, hey, wait a minute, I think you're, I think you're pushing, pushing an agenda. Well, you're finally listening. My psychosocial development was inculcated in the water of white supremacy. I have grown up with this invisible kind of bag of privilege. Like, I am a racist. Mm-hmm a system in which whiteness and white people are central and seen as inherently superior than to people of color. I'm going to struggle with racism and white supremacy until the day I die and get my glorified body. What I'm talking about right now is white privilege. Because I'm immersed in a culture where I, I benefit from racism all the time. Nothing makes Anglos more angry than the idea of white privilege. 
The Bible is very clear about the issue of justice. What does the Lord require of you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? We know this from Micah 6.8. And so justice is not optional for the people of God. That's why it's so critical that we understand what justice is. One of the dangers of the social justice movement is that it uses terminology that on the surface sounds like it ought to be what we as Christians are about. Social justice. Am I against justice? Of course not, I'm for justice. Anti-racism, am I pro-racism? Of course not. So what we need to do is get behind these terms, get behind these words and look at two things. Number one, look at what people mean when they use them in this cultural moment. And number two, evaluate that in light of what the Bible says about the same issues. So for example, when we talk about justice from a biblical perspective, Justice means the righteous application, the impartial application of the law of God in a given, given circumstance. Uh, we're told that we're not to be impartial to the poor or to the rich. We have to apply God's law equally across the board. Social justice means something very different. And so if we're going to have conversations about justice, if we're going to have conversations about contemporary issues of our day, we're going to have to do so in light of what the Word of God has to teach about all of these issues and while evaluating the cultural moment. You know, I've come a long way on a lot of these issues. Um, I am a guy who uh, had as probably the biggest hero of my life, um, Malcolm X. Uh, I am a guy who was always um, very Afrocentric, um, very, you could say, social justice oriented. As a believer, um, I came to a crossroads and I recognized that for the most part, I identified a lot more with my blackness than I did with my Christianity. For the most part, it was much more important to me that I was black than it was that I was Christian. Over time, I had to come to grips with the fact that in Christ, at the foot of the cross, there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free. Over time, I had to come to grips with the fact that Christ died not only to reconcile us vertically to the Father, but to reconcile us horizontally with one another, and that I am a member of the body of Christ, and that nothing supersedes that. Nothing is more important than that. And it is that realization and my desire to see that unity manifested within the body of Christ. If you're doing this study with a group, my hope is that this would be a place where you can be open, where you can be honest, a place where you can evaluate 
the narratives that are flying all around you, and a place where you can judge those things, not according to your feelings, but according to the truth of the scriptures, according to what thus saith the Lord. I do believe that justice is incredibly important, but justice is only important to the degree that it is the justice that God demands. To that end, we have to be right about what the word justice means and about what God requires of his people in this critical moment. Vody men, thank you for joining us all the way from Lusaka, Zambia. And uh, that, that clip, that first little bit of this new curriculum is excellent. It's, it's really, I think, going to be wonderfully useful. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that project. I mean, your book just did great, sold like wildfire all across the nation and the world. And uh, wh- why this curriculum? How did you come about the idea to do that? You know, a lot of people forget, but my first book, The Everloading Truth, uh, was also accompanied by a curriculum. Mm. And I had, I haven't done, you know, curriculum since then. I've wanted to. I always, uh, I've always wanted to ever since then. And so we started brainstorming about this and um, Salem gave us the green light. We put the team together and made the project. It came out better than any of us could have expected. Um, but I, I get excited about, you know, a tool like this to help people get deeper into the book, into the message of the book, or to help people who, you know, maybe haven't gotten into the book to at least be introduced to the overall message of the book and to help people, you know, get together and work through and have discussions about the material. I think that's healthy and um, I think it's fruitful and, and I'm excited about the opportunity to do that with this project. Good. You know, we've used fault lines and encourage folks to read it. And it's, uh, it's been clarifying for a lot of people that I know. And I've gotten feedback from folks when we've uh, distributed the book through founders. I think we like 200, 300 books or something like that. We copies we got that uh, we mm-hmm. tried to make available immediately once it was released. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's been great feedback. Uh, from folks and uh, people just saying, man, you know, we, d- we didn't understand the issues so clearly. We didn't know who the players were. And the way God helped you to, to assess the lay of the land in the evangelical world and to show how the, the world has been influencing evangelicalism along these, um, in these areas with these various ideologies, and it's creating some, some it's revealed some real mm. problems. Yeah. It was great. It's, it's sad. It had to be a, a sad book to write, I'm sure, for you. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it wasn't something that I was just, you know, rejoicing over the whole time. It was it was burdensome, mm. uh, but absolutely necessary. And um, it, it's, it's still sad to see these divides, to mm. see these fault lines, but they're also clarifying. And you know, that which divides also unifies, Mm. right? It it makes it, you know, clearer what side of the divide we're on and who's on that side of the divide with us. Um, And so we, we don't, we hope that things don't remain divided, right? We, we hope that we can be winsome and we hope that, you know, we can experience and see reconciliation, but none of that's going to happen unless there's clarity first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I was struck as we were watching that clip and some of the 
quotes that come from some of the people there. Back, it seems like this battle was raging most hotly 2018, 2019, 2020. And a lot of it has uh, kind of simmered down a little bit. You know, so you don't hear some of those same ideas um, when it comes to like critical social justice and stuff like that as, as loudly in the conservative evangelical church as you did in those years. And Tom and I were talking earlier, you know, it's not as if it's gone away, though. You know, it's just right. less popular to talk about it in those terms. And I think largely because of the book that you've written and because of some of the other stuff that other ministries have done. Um, but we would be foolish to think that nobody in the conservative evangelical church thinks like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we don't need to continue yeah. to address and continually try to eradicate from from evangelicalism. Yeah, I, I think you make a very important point, and that is that this stuff was very loud back then. And one of the reasons it was so loud is because there was very little pushback. Mm-hmm. And much of the pushback was, you know, immediately dismissed. Uh, you're a racist, you know, uh, you're whatever. Uh, but then there was um, a great deal of pushback that came, you know, almost like another tidal wave. And it is as though, you know, when these ideas were finally um, brought to light and when people could no longer shame the opposition into not calling them out, um, that it it sort of went, it went underground. Mm -hmm. But what I want people to understand is that the ideologies that we're talking about, these these neo-Marxist ideologies, right? Uh, This oppressor-oppressed paradigm, um, you know, this this hegemonic power that oppresses, you need to know that the, you know, 2S LGBTQIAA plus movement is running the exact same play. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in the same ideology. So all these things that we're seeing now about gender, um, you know, these ideas that we've seen about marriage and so on and so forth, they're all coming from the same place. All of the things that we're dealing with right now with the border crisis, it all comes from the same place. Because remember, you know, the hegemonic power, the the oppressor is, you know, white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, native-born, mm-hmm. right? Um, that That's part of the hegemony. Uh, so, yeah, all of these things that we're seeing today are part of the same mm-hmm. fault line. Yeah, that's well put, and uh, I'm reminded of what a a professor at one of the uh, prominent seminaries said to one of our guys when after he left the seminary. He said, you know what, he said, before, and he was talking about founders, the the Statement on Social Justice came out in 2018. You were part of that. I was part of that. Josh Bice and Phil Johnson, a lot of other guys, and that kind of initially shined some light on things, and then the 2019 Southern Baptist Convention, Resolution 9, mm-hmm. it highlighted the fact that it passed, despite some attempts by Tom Buck, myself, and some others maybe, trying to stop it. Then, then people began to say, what is this? What is critical race theory and intersectionality? And then the By What Standard documentary that was released yeah. at the end of 2019, this former professor was saying, you know, at the seminary, said everybody was for CRT mm-hmm. until you guys started talking about it and saying the stuff you said about it. And he was mad because he's a very big proponent of it. And uh, he was accusing us of us misrepresenting it 
But he said, now then, said nobody's talking about CRT. Praise God. Yeah, well, <laughs> praise God they're not talking about it. But what to your point and Vody's point, the, the fact that they've just kind of sublimated their vocabulary or their speech, if they even the good guys who got played by it, if they haven't seen it mm-hmm. and they're not repudiating it, mm-hmm. which means for some of them they need to publicly repent right. for what they did in ushering it in, then the LGBTQ plus and everything else is just going to continue to run that same play. But why would you repent because when you could just let the news cycle continue on and everyone forget about it, minutes, everyone yeah. forget what I said and just move right. on? Right, exactly, exactly. But, but see, we need to understand that's what intersectionality means, mm. right? What what are the intersections? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's it's your ethnicity, and it's your sexual orientation and it's your gender and it's your immigration status. And it's your, that's what intersectionality means. So again, resolution nine was on critical race theory and intersectionality. All of these things are included in the intersectional ideology. Mm. And it it was, it was naive, um, you know, at best, for people not to see that. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it is a way of thinking about the world and that way of thinking about the world still exists and sadly still permeates a lot of evangelical um, thinking. I, I just recently saw some documents of a new uh, Christian organization, conservative Christian organization that's being proposed. And they've got a whole section on this, you know, about how the only right way to handle racial issues is to basically buy into this way mm-hmm. of viewing the world. And I'm thinking, and these aren't bad guys, you know, these are by and large good guys, but they've just been uh, duped into thinking this is the only way that you can help those who have been oppressed. Mm-hmm. And it's tragic and it undermines the gospel. Founders has a few things coming out uh, on the issue of Christian nationalism. Dr. Tom Askell has recently written a little pamphlet, a little booklet on the perils and promises of Christian nationalism. That'll be coming out here in the next few uh, weeks, but you can pre-order that now for $2.99, or you can uh, donate a copy to be given away to an SBC attendee at the coming up Southern Baptist Convention in June next month. Also, I just want to remind you of the Founders National Conference that is coming up January 18th through the 20th, 2024. I'm going to have one speakers, Tom Askell, Conrad Mbeiway, uh, Joel Beakey, Phil Johnson, Travis Allen. Uh, the, the theme of the conference is Remembering Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wonderful time. It always is a wonderful time. Uh, and this year we have uh, Spanish translation and a Spanish live stream will be available for all of our attendees uh, who uh, speak Spanish or Spanish is their first language. Uh, so we want to make that available to all of our attendees and the people who are going to be live streaming it as well. So spread the word about that, that they can uh, take advantage of that opportunity. It's fascinating, Vody. We've talked a lot, and um, I mean, you and I participated in a pre-conference on Christian nationalism before the 2023 National Founders Conference, and we did a panel discussion during that. And in some ways, I, I see a lot of connections between the debates about Christian nationalism and some of the fears and and some of the extreme ideas that people are using uh, Christian nationalism to promote. I see connections with what we've lived through with some of these ideologies. Have you thought about that? I mean, you and I have talked about it a little bit, but uh, how do you think the 
playing field that we're on now is connected to the playing field we were on two or three years ago? Yeah, well, one of the things that I like to point out is that you've got to have the triple word score. It's got to be white Christian nationalism. Yep, right. And if you understand intersectionality, and if you understand Gramscian Marxism, then you understand that that is identifying three intersections of oppression. White mm. people are oppression are, are oppressors. Christians are oppressors. And again, native born nationalists, mm. right? Um, that's the, that's the third interlocking oppression. So it's a Gramscian Marxist triple word score when you include white Christian nationalism. And it's important to understand that the people who are pushing this, not, not everyone who's pushing this, but when this came in response to, um, to our reaction to the critical social justice movement, when people started throwing up white Christian nationalism, um, what they were doing is they were coming from that same ideology and they were making the same play, just using different verbiage. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden they were saying, here's, here's the hegemonic oppressive boogeyman. And it's the hegemonic oppressive boogeyman who is against our critical theory, critical race theory, um, so really, it was a way for them to run the same play, just sort of a sleight of hand, you know, hey, look over here. Um, you know, while at the same time, we all know that there are people, and you alluded to it just now, there are people who have very unhealthy and unbiblical views when it relates to Christianity and government and the broader culture. So, you know, no whole lie is ever going to be able to win the day. Mm. It's always got to be, you know, the, 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 the meat of a lie wrapped in the skin of the truth. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And, uh, it's, it's sad to see so much division among good evangelical brothers and sisters right now over these issues. And I, I, I treat it to just a great deal of confusion. We can't afford to live the way we lived in 20 years ago, 50 years ago. The world has changed, and uh, we talk a lot about uh, Aaron Wren's little paradigm of positive world, neutral world, negative world. Well, we're in the negative world, and if you still are employing the rules of engagement from the neutral world, well, you're just going to get wiped out, mm -hmm. and uh, that's yeah. exactly, they'll tie your hands and kick you to the curb, and that doesn't mean that we employ their weapons, but it does mean that we need to wake up and see what the Bible has to say about the world we're in today, and and brother, you've been involved in cultural apologetics for as long as I've known you. Uh, you've studied that and you've tried to engage that. You teach that at the Institute of Public Theology. It's one of the courses, uh, main courses we have here. So give us, a, give us a little kind of overview about Christians. And you're in Zambia, but you're an American. You, you, you expat, yeah. so you've raised here. How should Christians in America think about our roles and our responsibilities in our homes, in our churches, and in our civil arenas. Our responsibility is to be Christians in every sphere. Our responsibility is to press the claims of Christ in every sphere. There is no sphere where it is acceptable for us to hide our lamp under a bushel. So in other words, 
it would be wrong. It would be sinful for me to say, hey, it's an individual in my home. Um, we're going to press, press the claims of Christ. We're going to press the gospel. We're going to press, you know, uh, Christian, you know, ethics um, in, in church. You know, we're going to do that. But then as soon as I get into the public sphere, I am going to act as though Christ has no claim here. Mm. And I'm going to act as though there is no benefit or blessing to me pressing the claims of Christ and pressing Christian ethics in this particular sphere. That dog won't hunt, mm -hmm. right? And so at the end of the day, regardless of what terminology we use, we have to agree on that. We have to agree that as Christians, we have a duty and an obligation to press the claims of Christ in every sphere in which we operate. Yeah, amen. We got one of our uh, deacons right now who's been involved with our local school board in trying to uh, evaluate curriculum. And uh, some of the things that he's come across are just hair-raising. And so he has rightly argued uh, this is immoral. This mm -hmm. is not right. Yeah. We should not have this in our schools. Well, praise God. I, I would be, uh, I'd be very displeased and disappointed in him if he'd done anything less than that. And he's speaking as a Christian. He's speaking as somebody who knows God and who recognizes the Lordship over every area of life. And so, yeah, if you have, if you have a Christian governor or if you have a Christian mayor, Christian city council member. That can't happen, can it? Well, it can't happen, but, but it needs mm -hmm. to happen with full understanding. They don't check their Christianity at the door. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, okay, you know, we're in a pluralistic society, so I've got to, you know, not try to be convictional here. No, no, the, uh, that, that, that's a dereliction of duty. Hey, let me play yeah. the devil's advocate. We, we, expect the, we expect the Buddhist to be the Buddhist, you know, in the public sphere. We expect the Muslim to be the Muslim in the public sphere. Uh, it, it's only the Christian mm -hmm. that we expect to, you know, check his Christianity well, in the public sphere. Th that's because the Christian has the truth and the Christian shouldn't speak the truth uh, in every <laughs> sphere. But if I could play the devil's advocate, I mean, Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world um, and the kingdom of Christ is set up in the hearts of men. Um, and we see the kingdom of Christ particularly manifested in the church. And so is it not inappropriate then that Christians would be going outside of that sphere of the church where there are regenerate men to try to make the rest of the world Christian. You can make that same argument in the home, right? <laughs> when my children, when my children come into my home, you can make that exact same argument, right? Um, that, that my children are not regenerate. So, you know, wouldn't it be inappropriate for me to press those, you know, claims there. But the other thing is the great commission, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're commanded in the great commission to go into all the world mm -hmm. and teach them to observe whatever he's commanded us. So no, we, we, we can't, again, every sphere mm -hmm. where we find ourselves, it is our duty. It is our obligation. It is our great joy to press the claims of Christ. Yeah, and understanding those fears means that we're not going to ask the church to do what God's called the family to do. And we're right. not going to ask the family to do what God's called the church to do. We're not going to ask the state to do what he's called the others to do. But God has called each one to function in certain ways. And I, I, you know, every week we pray the Lord's Prayer in our church, and we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what does that look like? I mean, if that prayer were to be answered, what would it look like mm. in the civil realm? The, would would God's yeah. will in the civil realm 
be different than the paganism that we see today? Well, of course it would. Be. And, and, he, and here's the here's the the thing. When people press this, when people you know come against us with this, they're lying. So when you watch, you know, a program on MSNBC and you have a an apostate Christian and transgender, I'm thinking about the, um, um, the, the, the I forget her name, Reed, I forget her name. But anyway, so she has Jim Wallace and, and you know, this, you know, transgender person on there and they're arguing from their Christianity, right? Their self-proclaimed Christianity. They're arguing from their view of God. They're arguing from their view of the scriptures and nobody is saying anything. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Christian nationalism, (laughs) you know, you're bringing your religion, you know, into this. Nobody's saying that they don't care as long as you don't believe or press the claims of Christ, right? As long as you make Jesus a Marxist, (laughs) they're more than happy to hear you speak the name of Jesus. Yeah. So just don't be intimidated. Yeah, absolutely. we got, we don't have time for that, right? Yeah. We, we, we don't, we don't have time for that. Well, and, and we need to call this out. We need to call the hypocrisy out. You know, everybody knows that we have no choice but to operate from our theological convictions. Right. The Amen. problem is people hate Jesus. Yeah, that's the bottom line. And you know, the Bible is pretty clear about uh, those who are outside of Christ are his enemies and God is their enemy. There's no debating that. That's that's crystal clear. And yet we lose sight of that because we've had we've had such so many benefits in this culture for so long. They are benefits that came from the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now those benefits have been mm-hmm. used up and the guns are being turned on us. And I, I just sense a real uh, disorientation in the minds of many people uh, who, who are Christians. And we just need to regain that mindset. No, the most political thing that you can say as a Christian is Jesus is Lord. Mm-hmm. He's Lord yeah. over the critics. He's Lord over the government. He's Lord over the institutions of this world. All the kingdoms of the earth belong to the kingdom of our Christ. Uh, another way that I've tried to think about this practically, and it's interesting, I've gone back and, and read some things I wrote 20, 25 years ago, and my thinking has developed and it's been sharpened. You know, Back then, I wasn't being pressed nearly as hard to consider some of the things that I have to consider today as a pastor and trying to shepherd a congregation. But overall, I think the principles were there. I didn't maybe grasp them as clearly as I wish I had, and and maybe I hope that I do now. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul tells us to pray for kings and those in high places so that we might live a a peaceful and quiet life in godliness and uh, with dignity, I'm thinking, okay, we should pray for civil leaders so that we can have this kind of life. Well, if we're to pray for people like that so that we can live this kind of life, doesn't it stand to reason that we should work for that as well? Mm. Shouldn't we take what opportunities God puts in our hands? And here in America, we've got incredible opportunities. Opportunities they don't have in China. And while we still have them, we ought to use them. And what are we praying? That's the other thing. What are we praying? Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. If if I'm praying for kings and those in authority because of a particular kind of life that I want, then I'm praying for kings and those in authority to do things that line up right. with God's word, right? right? How can it be right for me to pray that they will do that, but it not be right for me to work toward those things being done? Exactly. That's just ridiculous. It's exactly right. I, Another thing that, again, I came across, I wrote years ago about uh, citizen kings. And in America, we don't have a king. The citizens are the kings. We're we're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And so if we're going to take what the Bible says in the Old Testament about the responsibilities of kings, uh, both pagan and uh, the Israelite kings, if we're going to apply looking for righteousness in those requirements to ourselves, well, then I ought to want, out of a principle of love, for my neighbors to see good come to them. Mm. And I don't love my neighbors if I vote for certain politicians, if I just don't stand against certain policies. If I let drag queen story hour go unopposed at our library, I'm not loving our neighbors and I'm not being oh. the kind of citizen King that I'm obligated to be. Yeah. Those kind of things to me, I, I think are just, they're, they're rooted in good principle and the application of them, we can debate, you know, what that looks like in the details. But my goodness, I hate to see Christians today abdicate that responsibility because they say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, politics has nothing to do with the church. Yeah, but this was the play. You use the scary Gramscian Marxist hegemonic oppressor terminology, you know, white Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it off balances the Christian so that now the Christian begins to be fearful of, you know, that terrible oppressive ideology. So we retreat from it. Right. And that's what's going on for a lot of people now is they're retreating from it. And what they're also retreating from is these basic principles that we're talking about, which is why I think it's really important for us to sort of get behind the terminology um, and as you said, just sort of get down to the basic principles and then and then move forward from there. Right. Yeah. Here's what's true. Here's what's required of us. How do we get there from here? And I think if we take that approach, you know, rather than trying to wear other people's labels, um, I think we'll get a lot farther in this. Yeah, I think um, we have lots of discussions about what should be done, what can be done, what's the relationship of the church to the state, how should the church influence the state, should the state identify as Christians, all these things about what we should do. Um, but then what is actually true? You know, Daniel seven twenty seven says this, and this is speaking of after Christ has ascended to the the one on high, and he's been given all authority in heaven in Daniel 7, uh, 727 says this, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most mm-hmm. high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The kingdoms and the dominions of earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. And who are those people? <laughs> That's God's people. That's the church. And certainly I'm not arguing that we merge the two together, but we're going to inherit the nations. And you could talk about the timing of that. Is that an over-realized eschatology? I think it starts when Christ sits on his throne at his ascension, and there's a progressive unfolding from then until the end when he returns. Um, but what should we do? What shouldn't we do? That's a, Those are great conversations to have. But what is true? This mm. is true. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, the fact that uh, 
Christ is Lord. We, we mustn't back away from that claim uh, in any sphere. And when people tell us to keep our religion to ourselves, we can't do that because we're Christians. Uh, we are obligated to make disciples and to teach those disciples to observe everything mm-hmm. that Jesus has commanded us. Mm-hmm. So the, the principles of righteousness, the principles of justice, uh, mercy, all of that needs to be uh, set forth by God's people. If we don't teach folks these things, who will? If we're not preaching Amen. God's law and God's gospel, nobody else is going to do it because Christ has called his church uh, to that responsibility and given to us uh, the commission to go and make disciples mm-hmm. for him. Amen. Well, Vody, brother, we appreciate you uh, so much. We're grateful for uh, all that you're doing there in Zambia and the African Christian University. Uh, grateful for your family and the ministry that you have there, too. You're writing, you're speaking. Look forward to seeing you again, brother, and uh, appreciate you joining us today on The Sword and the Trowel. And we're going to put links in this uh, podcast, in the notes of this podcast, to that new curriculum from Salem, where you can actually take Vody's book, Fault Lines, and use these video, uh, uh, the curricula of the videos, and do that in small groups and benefit your friends, your neighbors, your Sunday school class, or others in order to help them understand what has gone on, what is going on in the world in which we live right now. So thanks for joining us today on the Sword and Trial. If this has been beneficial to you, please share it and encourage others to uh, subscribe to this podcast. Why are we here? What is the most important thing in the world? One of our greatest problems is is forgetting. We, We forget what God has done for us. We forget what God has taught us. We forget things that we have experienced. If we don't pause, if we don't think deeply, if we aren't reminded again and again and again, we forget. It strikes me pretty significantly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Why in the world would Paul tell a pastor to remember Christ? Well, he's not going to forget that Jesus Christ lived and that Jesus Christ taught, but he's going to forget the significance of Christ. Christ is ultimately our mission. The church is the body of Christ. A church has to focus on the supremacy of Christ because That's why we are the church. Christ is supreme over all. The church's great mission is to preach Christ. We're there to win souls. We're there to advance Christ's kingdom. The problem with the world is not that they don't agree with me. The problem is that they don't bow the knee to Christ. So that's why we're going to gather, to specifically, explicitly focus on the supremacy of Christ, to do our best to remind each other of the centrality of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. So join us in Fort Myers, Florida, January 18th through 20th, 2024 as we focus on Jesus Christ. I hope to see you there.